Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the arrest of a former Republican candidate for a state house seat in New Mexico who lost in a landslide, but claiming that I stand with Donald J. Trump, he went on a stop-the-steal jihad to the point he hired four men to shoot up the houses of Democratic elected officials. Joining us is Jessica Fizel, a professor of political science at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, specializing in American politics and political communication. Her research draws on scholarship in public opinion, media, political participation, civic engagement, and public policy. She's also the co-author of The Politics of Energy Crises, and we'll question why a convicted felon who spent seven years in jail could run for state office in the first place and assess what is behind the recent increase in threats and attacks on elected officials. Then we'll look into what could happen as soon as Thursday when the debt ceiling is met with a house dominated by the nihilist caucus, which could destroy the good faith and credit of the United States and do untold damage to the American economy for reasons hard to discern. Joining us is Zachary Carter, a consultant at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, who spent 10 years as a senior reporter at the Huffington Post, where he covered economic policy and American politics. He is the author of The Price of Peace, Money, Democracy and the Life of John Maynard Keynes, and we will discuss his op-ed at the Washington Post, The Debt Ceiling is an Absurd Problem, Only an Absurd Solution Can Save Us. Then finally, we will speak with Jared Yates Sexton, the author of American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World but Failed Its People, and The People Are Going to Rise Like the Waters Upon Your Shore, as well as three collections of fiction. The host of the Muckrake podcast, his latest book just out is The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. And the Coming Crisis. We'll discuss how the current rise of fascism led by a reality TV star is a part of a long history the book covers in which reality is rejected for paranoid fantasies, ending up with today's apocalyptic mindset that has become Republican orthodoxy. And joining us now from Albuquerque is Jessica Fizel, who is a professor of political science at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, specializing in American politics and political communication. Her research draws on scholarship in public opinion, media, political participation, civic engagement, and public policy, and she's also the co-author of The Politics of Energy Crises. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jessica Wiesel. Thank you so much, Ian. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Jessica. And obviously, there's been a lot of tension in Albuquerque for some time because of these series of shootings into the homes of Democratic lawmakers. Starting on December the 4th, somebody fired eight rounds into the home of Adrienne Baboa, the Bernardino County Commissioner. Then on December the 8th, shots were fired into the home of State Representative Javier Martinez. And then three days later, on December the 11th, uh, shots were fired into the home of another Bernardino County Commissioner, Debbie O'Malley. And then the most recent event took place on January the 3rd, where shots were fired into the home of State Senator Linda Lopez. So I take it Albuquerque's been on edge. Is that a reasonable assumption? Yeah, it is a reasonable assumption. I think it's um, very frightening when this happens anywhere, when shootings happen anywhere, and it's definitely 
um, even more disturbing when they happen in your hometown and when they seem to be targeted at public officials. So the shooting, uh, the most recent one, on January the 3rd, Interstate Senator Linda Lopez's home, where apparently this person who was arrested, Solomon Pena, he was with one of the four people that he hired. Pena apparently tried to fire into the home with his uh, AR-15 automatic assault rifle, but it malfunctioned, and then the other man with him fired a dozen rounds from his handgun into the home and also into the bedroom of Miss Lopez's daughter. So it's probably somewhat miraculous, isn't it, not, Jessica, that people weren't killed with all these bullets flying around? It is. It, it's it's quite surprising. Um, I think we're fortunate in that respect, but it does give me and our community great pause to think about whether this is um, an emerging trend and what the consequences of are something like this down the line. I think that when we think about politicians and people who run for office and choose to serve their community, um, we often think of the things that they must consider in that decision to do so. And usually, and I would say especially for women, um, your career and your family and your safety and your public name and reputation certainly are barriers to one's willingness to run for office. And to add now to this a personal threat to safety in your home with your family, it just seems insurmountable and I wouldn't be surprised if down the line we do see some impacts in terms of the emergence of candidates willing to serve in public office as a result. Well, you either have to wear, you know, a bulletproof vest or decide it's just not worth it, right? I am afraid that that is sort of a reasonable answer to the statement. I, I think it's a terrible state of affairs that, you know, citizens and fellow community members who are willing to set aside their life to serve the public would have to face sort of a life and death calculation in their decision to be in politics and to serve. Um, the other side of that is that many people won't do it. And I think that any situation in which we have fewer qualified candidates and fewer people who are willing and able to serve and fewer people who come from diverse backgrounds who are able to say, I'm going to run for office to make the campaign to serve an office. I think that that, you know, sort of restriction on the diversity and selection of politicians is inevitably harmful to democracy. So in terms of the shooting at the home of State Senator Linda Lopez on January the 3rd, the shell casings that the police found at her home matched the handgun that was confiscated from the accomplice who was there with Solomon Pena, apparently. He was stopped at a, at a traffic stop just 40 minutes after the shooting. And his name is uh, Jose Trujillo. And he had a, apparently an outstanding felony arrest warrant. But the car that he was driving was registered to Mr. Pena. So he doesn't, Pena doesn't sound like the sharpest assassin. I mean, he, he spent, what, seven years in jail for, I think, 13-plus felonies, some of them quite serious. What do you make of that? I mean, the police have obviously known or at least suspected Pena since January the 3rd. You know, I, I cannot comment on the police investigation, on the evidence that was found, and on, you know, his qualifications as an assassin. It is an unfortunate circumstance and situation. 
I think that our community finds itself in. And it's unfortunate that that somebody would think that this is the answer to anything and to be so sort of deceived in the way that elections are carried out and run to think that this is the proper response to losing by a substantial margin an election. Well, he ran against an incumbent Democrat, Miguel Garcia, who had apparently sued on the basis of the fact that Pena had felony convictions. And for some reason or other, the courts decided that Pena could go ahead and run. It's kind of puzzling. Do you have any idea of why the court ruled in Mr. Pena's favour, saying that a state law that bars felons from holding office, uh, unless they are pardoned by the governor, was unconstitutional? You know, I, I don't know the specifics of that court decision. I, I did read about as much as you've just said, and um, the specifics of the decision I, I'm not familiar with, unfortunately. Well, at the time when uh, he was being challenged by the incumbent who won in a landslide, mm-hmm. he was called by the local paper, the Albuquerque Journal. You know, they asked him about his felony convictions and his criminal record. And he said, I stand with Donald J. Trump and hung up on the reporters. So, I mean, there seems to be a connection there, right? He, he became obsessed just as Donald Trump became obsessed with this sort of stop the steal idea. Yeah, it definitely does seem to be the case. And um, it, I think it's an interesting sort of commentary on politics today that somebody could have a, you know, a criminal history and very little of a platform and still garner as much of a vote as he did. Um, as a questionable candidate on the ballot on top of that. So um, I think that goes to show sort of how divided our politics are today. And in terms of, you know, the broader context of the Stop the Steal sort of um, narrative, you know, I think that there has been very little evidence, if any, to support any of the claims that Donald Trump has raised about the um, authenticity and the validity of the elections that we hold. I think that um, secretaries of state across the nation have done a very good job of maintaining election integrity. And the narrative that still sort of seems to be looming um, and largely is one that is used by people who lose elections is that these are somehow fraudulent elections. And it's just not true. Um, however, as politics seems to be creeping into our individual identities more and more, where we start to think of ourselves as Democrats and Republicans, in addition to women and men and Catholics and um, educated people and lawyers, right? As politics becomes more and more of identity, it becomes harder and harder to correct misinformation and to correct these essentially lies that are being told because we think of them as being more personally important to us. And as that sort of personal issue importance of politics becomes so central to our lives, correcting this misinformation is quite hard. So I often ponder, Jessica, about how one creates a reality-based community in post-truth America. But it is essential, isn't it, that what happened on January the 6th is understood as a real event? and that those responsible be punished. I mean, that's now become a contest uh, because the new uh, House led by Kevin McCarthy seems to be determined to, you know, rewrite history and instead of of treating these people as insurgents guilty of sedition, 
They're trying to turn those who assaulted the capital, or at least those that were arrested and tried, as heroes and martyrs. I think that your quest to sort of figure out how we um, reintroduce truth to the public discourse is important. It's admirable and it's fundamentally necessary. Um, How we do it is a very important and hard question to answer. I think that there's some emerging evidence that increased deliberation with people that you disagree with can have positive effects in terms of correcting misinformation. Um, It might be the case that a lot of Congress members today, as a lot of the public are, find themselves in sort of these echo chambers of agreement and support, and they're very rarely challenged or even just exposed to discourse with people that they might disagree with. And that exposure to disagreement has the potential to sort of cause people to re-entrench and to sort of hold on to those pieces of misinformation. But more often than not, it seems that it also leads people through a discussion that brings them to a more fuller idea of what the truth actually is. And I would argue that the discussion that we seem to be having, unfortunately, in sort of um, a strange time format where the Democrats sort of led the narrative um, on the January 6th events, and now the Republicans will lead the narrative on the January 6th events, is sort of happening in a strange way that doesn't allow us to really discuss what happened and the consequences of it. And I think that by and large also, you know, the frames that, that the political elites, the Congress members put out on these events are, are not necessarily the ones that the public holds. I think the public in general denounces violence. The public in general doesn't think that what happened on January 6th is a good thing. But those more sort of neutral not sensationalistic headlines, unfortunately, don't seem to dominate the media discourse. But obviously, the issue of gun control or gun safety, as it's now referred to, is another one of these divisive and hot-button issues. But you can't help feeling that there's a component here in this shooting up of the homes of these Democratic lawmakers in Albuquerque because Pena's gun, his AR-15 assault rifle, jammed, which is merciful because that's a powerful weapon. I mean, the uh, the daughter of the state senator within her bedroom was shot up by the handgun, but my God, what would have happened had, had his gun not jammed? So again, there's so many of these incidents and mass shootings lead to hand-wringing over what do we do, and again, we go up against the polarization and, and nothing gets done. Yep, that is it. I mean, if nothing got done after Sandy Hook, it's it became my position that nothing will ever be done. So is anybody talking about how these guys got their guns? I mean, I think that people, um, you know, the police, of course, will look into that and whether they were legally purchased or not. I honestly don't think that whether they were legally purchased or illegally purchased would have any impact on the gun debate in America today. So just in closing, there's still a mystery out there that... Apparently, the police on Monday in Albuquerque said that Pena was not implicated in other reports of shots being fired near a former campaign office of the state's attorney general this month and at the law office of a state senator in December. So this is not over, right? There's somebody out there that also hasn't been caught. Yeah, it's, it's truly tragic that people feel emboldened and supported to take 
violent actions such as these against anyone in their community, period. And if there are more people out there doing it, it just is, I think, a case in point that we are in an environment where extremism seems to be tolerated and perhaps encouraged. And I think that it is very important for us to remember that there are consequences for these actions, just as there always have been. And so we need to remember that these are still illegal activities. These are still punishable events and that this is not something that should be encouraged. Living in Albuquerque while these shootings were happening, it was actually quite quiet in the media about them. We heard a little bit, but it was mostly um, through word of mouth and very little press. At least I saw very little press. And I think that's because there's some fear of sort of this copycat phenomenon that happens when the press talks about events such as these. People feel like, oh, maybe that's a good idea. I should do that too. But it is very important for the press and their framing and telling of these issues to remind the public that these are absolutely criminal and punishable and not acceptable nor encouraged ways to respond to an election. Well, Jessica Fiesel, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Ian. It was a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Jessica Fiesel, who's a professor of political science at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, specializing in American politics and political communication. Her research draws on scholarship in public opinion, media, political participation, civic engagement, and public policy. And she's the co-author of The Politics of Energy Crises. We're going to take a brief station break and we're back looking into what could happen as soon as Thursday when the debt ceiling is met with a house dominated by the Nihilist Caucus, which could destroy the good faith and credit of the United States and do untold damage to the American economy for reasons hard to discern. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Zachary Carter, a consultant at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, who spent 10 years as a senior reporter at the Huffington Post, where he covered economic policy and American politics. He's the author of The Price of Peace, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes. And he has an op-ed at the Washington Post, The Debt Ceiling is an Absurd Problem, Only an Absurd Solution Can Save Us. Welcome to Background Briefing. Zachary Carter. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And this absurd problem of the debt ceiling is fast approaching, is it not? Janet Yellen, the Secretary of Treasury, said the government's going to run out of money a couple of days from now on Thursday. Yes, they're uh, they're moving to extraordinary measures, which means essentially they're prioritizing uh, <laughs> which types of payments the government can make that don't formally rely require uh, debt issuance. Uh, so we're we're just about there. Uh, it's it's going to happen any day now. 
Uh, and we've been doing this, you know, for 12 years now. Uh, every few years, we have one of these standoffs. They're completely self-inflicted. Uh, they serve no function. There's no economic need for it whatsoever. It's all just uh, just political theater, but with potentially catastrophic consequences. And this, the recent political theater made a dark turn under Mitch McConnell, right, who's now compared to the House uh, Freedom Caucus and McCarthy and Company, is the elder statesman that uh, everybody's breathing a sigh of relief that at least you've got adults in the in the Senate. But it's McConnell that politicized the debt ceiling, did he not? Yes. I mean, there are a lot of things that the, Repub- the Republican Party has changed quite a bit over the last decade. Uh, but most of uh, what the Freedom Caucus and the real hardliners on the ultra-right in the Republican Party are doing today is just a, you know, a stronger version of something that Mitch McConnell and the, um, the supposedly moderate wing, the business wing of the Republican Party, began doing years ago. I mean, we, we started this in 2011. Uh, it, it's, you know, Paul Ryan has been part of this. Uh, Mitch McConnell's been part of this. Uh, every Republican who votes not to uh, raise the debt ceiling when we go through these uh, ridiculous charades uh, is, is, is part of this activity. You know, the, the debt ceiling has nothing to do with uh, government spending. It has to do with the amount of debt the Treasury Department is authorized to issue. So you have sort of two separate tracks for economic policy. You have Congress authorizing certain amounts of spending and certain amounts of taxation, and then you have the Treasury, which is authorized to issue debt. And if you don't let Treasury issue debt to meet the shortfall between the spending and the taxation that's been authorized, uh, you're going to have a problem. And in this case, the problem is that we won't be able to pay the interest on debt that's already been issued. And uh, that's called the default. And because the United States government's bonds uh, or treasury bonds are a basic unit of global finance, they're sort of the standard uh, officially risk-free global asset, a default on U.S. government debt could have potentially catastrophic consequences uh, not only for the United States, but for the entire global economy. Uh, the, the global financial system doesn't know how to operate with a uh, U.S. Treasury bond that is not uh, risk-free, ironclad, guaranteed. So these right-wing radicals of the Freedom Caucus that are threatening, and obviously they want to use the debt ceiling as leverage to push through a reactionary agenda, but it's as though the United States wants to, to commit geopolitical suicide, right? You want to, you know, there's all this concern about China as a rising hegemon and U.S. as a fading power. And what does the U.S. do in response to, or what do these Republicans do in response to that fear? They shoot America in the foot? Isn't the, the power of the dollar as a universal exchange currency one of the greatest assets the United States has? Well, I don't think we want to find out. <laughs> I, I think... Uh... The dollar and the uh, the the status of the dollar and then the status of uh, the glo- the functioning of the global financial system are two separate issues. They're clearly sure. related. Um, but the most immediate question uh, is is just how banks around the world and financial institutions that are not formally designated as banks, but that do the moving of money uh, to and from people who want it and people who have it. Um, whether those institutions are going to be able to settle their account balances at the end of every day. And when they can't do that, we call that a financial crisis. Um, and the status of the dollar is a, is a big geopolitical question that happens afterwards. Uh, <laughs> do we want to be relying on a unit of account in this global system uh, that is subject to uh, this kind of catastrophic 
revaluation. Um, now, the, the dollar itself may not you know, re, re, revalue in terms of international trade and, and the price of, you know, say, iron or, uh, or plastic, but, uh, but the financial system could be in very serious trouble right away. And of course, there would be geopolitical consequences for that. Um, and, and frankly, I think there are geopolitical consequences for just playing this game. I mean, the fact we've done it over and over again now, even though we haven't defaulted on the debt and had that kind of uh, financial meltdown as a result, um, the fact that our government threatens to do this to itself over and over again, I think undermines the credibility of the United States as a, uh, as a global uh, leader, uh, as any, any sort of uh, responsible uh, party in international affairs. Um, people know that it works out in the end right now, but people are nervous about working with us in ways that they weren't 15 years ago because of, because of these debacles. Well, surely they must see what's happening on, uh, with the 15 rounds of uh, voting that finally brought in McCarthy. They must know the radical nature of the Freedom Caucus, which is the tail that wags the dog now of the House Republicans. I mean, they literally are dousing themselves with gasoline and holding up a match and threatening to strike it. Well, and I think, you know, I, I won't hide my political cards here. Uh, you know, I think to the democratic world, the presidency of Donald Trump was uh, a very troubling development uh, outside the United States. Um, I think the debt ceiling raises other questions, um, not just whether or not the United States is capable of electing someone who is sympathetic to global strongmen like Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, um, but whether even if they do elect, even if the United States does elect people who are sympathetic to such figures, uh, whether they're capable of just, you know, buttoning their shirts and uh, zipping up their pants. Like uh, there's some basic, basic stuff about governing here that uh, that the, the government appears to be unwilling to do sometimes. And that is uh, it's it's baffling to everyone who is not an American. And I think if you're an American, it should be baffling, too. Sure. Well, well, I'm trying to sort of unbaffle it, if there's such a word. And uh, and your article basically says that uh, silly problems demand silly solutions. So let's talk about the problem itself and how it arose back in 1917 during World War One. Well, the United States didn't always uh, issue debt in the way that it, it does today. You know, the Treasury Department markets bonds uh, on a, a regular basis uh, you know, when it seems appropriate to do so at, at the appropriate maturity is one year, five year, 10 years, 30 years, um, different lengths uh, that the United States will pay you interest on money that you turn over in exchange for this treasury bond. And the treasury has a lot of autonomy in how they do that. But it wasn't always this way. It used to be the United States didn't run deficits on a regular basis. And so before World War One, when the United States began really running big deficits for the, the first sustained period in its history, the, the Congress authorized Treasury to go ahead and start marketing bonds the way it, it does today. But it said, you know, just to make sure these, they'd never done this before. So just to make sure that Treasury didn't go wild and market too much debt and get the United States in over its head, uh, they put a limit on how much debt the Treasury could issue. And so every now and then Congress has to go in and then raise the amount that Treasury is authorized to, to issue. Now, you could imagine it. They, Congress at the time was imagining a situation where, you know, they needed a million dollars to pay for World War One, but Treasury got a little bit crazy and 
didn't really estimate how much uh, demand there was going to be and, and issues like two or three million dollars in, in debt. And now we have these obligations to pay off for spending that we never actually undertook. That's just not a serious risk in the present day. Um, the, the risks today that are, that are caused by the debt ceiling, the, the debt ceiling itself is not connected to any amount of, of spending formula, formally. So the, the risk today is that the United States just won't pay interest on debt that has already been accrued, uh, that already been issued, uh, and that's that's called a default, and that uh, that changes the value of the debt that is on the books of every financial institution in the world, and uh, a sudden revaluation in a basic asset like that can cause total chaos. We we don't know how severe the damage would be, and I don't think we want to find out. Well, your article points out. The numbers crunches at Moody's says that a U.S. government debt default would destroy 6 million American jobs and send the domestic unemployment rate to 9%. And it's also impossible to predict how major investors and other governments would respond to the shock of a previously inconceivable event. So we don't really know what the damage would be, but just that alone gives you pause, doesn't it? I mean, we're talking about sending things back to, uh, you know, roughly as bad as they were during uh, the worst part of the Great Recession, um, the, the crisis that followed the financial crisis of 2008. How long we would stay there, we don't know. I mean, I think economic models tend to have trouble with these types of uncertain events where something that hasn't happened before happens. So if you have a sudden shock and you lose a lot of jobs, does that mean that you lose a lot of jobs for three months or six months and everybody calms down and it's okay? Or is there a cascading effect where something else happens because this, this trouble has unleashed? Do you, is there a massive decline in the confidence of the dollar? Do we have a new global economic, financial system that has to sort of sort itself out by fits and starts over, uh, over the course of years? I mean, these things have happened before, and, and they call them depressions. <laughs> so uh, that, that is not the type of event we want to get involved with, but the best case scenario is, is very grim and totally needless. I mean, this, this, there's, there's no issue right now with whether or not the United States government can pay its bills. C- defaulting on the debt for fun like this just has no economic benefit for anybody anywhere. Well, I was just uh, interviewing uh, the other day the foreign correspondent for The Guardian had spent the last year in Ukraine covering the war, and he's written a book about it. And he asked me, you know, he was puzzled as to why this new Republican Congress would want to cut aid to Ukraine. And he's asking me to explain why they they would do that to the party of Ronald Reagan. Why have they thrown their lot in with Vladimir Putin? And I simply don't have an answer because I think it gets to this problem we have with these people. I Are they nihilist? Is it, what motivates them? Why do they want to destroy the United States in the name of I mean, I what? don't... <laughs> Look, I, uh, I I have not seen the insides of these people's heads, and I, I don't particularly want to. Um, but uh, there do seem to be a couple of different motivations on the Republican side that are distinct. Um, one is a longstanding desire to achieve a sort of wealthy, special interest, politics-oriented uh, political gain. So trying to cut Social Security and Medicare or eliminate them altogether. People who are ideologically hostile to the existence of a social safety net and the American administrative state um, just want to see the government shrink. And they use the, they see this as a way to get leverage 
to force concessions there that otherwise they could not get by simply voting on on the issue. Um, Republicans don't want to bring a bill to the floor that says we, the Republican Party, want to take away your Social Security and Medicare. What they want to say is because we have this debt ceiling crisis, we did what we, we had to do in order to we, we took, you know, mm-hmm. we took a, a series of strategic measures that created technical fixes. And as a result, you don't want to have Social Security and Medicare. But there was a crisis and we had to get out of the crisis. Um, that's that's one set of strategic interests which I think is extremely irresponsible, but you can sort of see the ideological rationale to what's going on. The other is that there's a caucus in the Republican Party for whom, because we've been doing this debt ceiling thing for 12 years, just sees the debt ceiling itself as an opportunity to really stick one to the Democrats. So just make the Democrats really uncomfortable. There's, this, there's an element of just sort of uh, outright political animosity Mm-hmm. To this, um, that I, you know, I think you see you see some of it in the 15 votes for for speaker. Um, you know, it's not really clear what the point of all of that was at the end of the day. I mean, I, I guess we, we the point was to create this this chaos for uh, the debt ceiling vote. Um, but even there, you know, the Republicans probably could have created chaos with a debt ceiling vote without all of that. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's just a caucus in the Republican Party that is kind of in love with doing dangerous things um and that can sound edgy and exciting to a certain type of personality um but we're talking about people's jobs we're talking about people's livelihoods we're talking about global geopolitical stability so just in the last minute then i I wanted to touch on your solution a silly problem demands a silly solution and you point out that House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler wants the Biden administration to mint a platinum coin under an obscure provision of the federal appropriations law passed in 1996. The president can authorize the Treasury to mint platinum coins at any face value. So the Treasury could mint, say, a $1 trillion coin deposited at the Federal Reserve and then use these funds to pay the government's obligations without incurring additional debts. So... I mean, it sounds fanciful, but the situation is so crazy. Why not? Why not do that? It's very oh, doable, I mean, is it I, not? I mean, people have been saying that this is ridiculous since it was uh, pointed out by a blogger in 2011, and of course it's ridiculous. But the whole situation is ridiculous. I mean, the the law basically authorizes the treasury to, you know, with any amount of platinum. It's not like you need, you know, seven boats full of platinum to print the trillion dollar coin. It's you know, you can just an ounce of it or whatever, whatever you need to, to, to mint an actual coin uh, and then just assign whatever value you want to it. Um, then the government has this money on account with the Fed. And when the government wants to spend money, as it does when it appropriates funds, when Congress appropriates funds for, for government spending, um, it just draws on the coin instead of issuing debt. Um, you know, that's that's a, that's the way around it. It's very silly. But it's no more inflationary than issuing bonds to pay for the spending. Uh, the, the, what matters if you're worried about inflation or about things actually happening in the real economy is the spending itself, which Congress is authorizing. Um, so if you don't want that spending to happen, then Congress needs to not authorize that spending. Um, uh, the, the debt ceiling is, is not a thing that creates new money. It's not a thing that changes the money supply. It doesn't. It, it has no impact on the actual economics of things. It, it matters for the legal technicalities of the economic stuff that's already happening. It it makes the spending legal, basically. Well, Zachary Carter, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks so much for having me.
And again, I've been speaking with Zachary Carter, who's a consultant at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, who spent 10 years as a senior reporter at the Huffington Post, where he covered economic policy and American politics. He's the author of The Price of Peace, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes. And he has an op-ed at the Washington Post. The debt ceiling is an absurd problem. Only an absurd solution can save us. We're going to take a B station break. We're back looking into how the current rise of fascism led by a reality TV star is part of a long history in which reality is rejected for paranoid fantasies, ending up with today's apocalyptic mindset that has become Republican orthodoxy. Inflation getting higher, Unemployment on the rise, gasoline issue filled with lies, rent being paid late, please, let the dollar circulate, let the dollar circulate. Burning ice, Jesus coming. Jesus comes to pave the way Do you believe in his sweet sensation? Do you believe in the second chance? Do you believe in rapture boy? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jared Yates Sexton, the author of American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World but Failed Its People, and The People Are Going to Rise Like the Waters Upon Your Shore, as well as three collections of fiction. He's the host of the Muckrake podcast, and his latest book just out is The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jared Yates Sexton. Thank you so much for having me. Always a joy. Well, thank you, Jaron. Of course, you've got a, an inkling of the crisis to come in terms of an extraordinary case out of Albuquerque, New Mexico, where a convicted felon who'd spent almost seven years in jail on 19 felony counts nevertheless was able to run as a Republican for the state legislature. He lost soundly. But then, borrowing from Trump stopped the steal. He believed that he had won and the election had been rigged against him. And he hired four people to go and shoot up the homes of Democratic lawmakers, including those that had won. And he's now been caught and in jail. And uh, I, th- I don't know that they caught all of them, but caught some of them. But that's an example, is it not, of Trump's sort of fictional obsession with not being a loser has metastasized into a real-world event. I mean, he shot, this guy shot into houses where young children were asleep and the bullets missed them barely. So is this a portent of things to come? Unfortunately, it is. Um, What we're dealing with right now is a crisis on many levels. And part of it is in a a crisis in liberal democracy. Um, Whether or not we're going to have elections, whether or not we're going to be able to agree on who won those elections and who lost those elections. And by the way, it, it 
it isn't a coincidence that people like Donald Trump and the people who fund him and work for him and, and, and work through him have intentionally muddied the waters on what we can trust through elections, whether or not we can trust uh, fellow citizens at all, or whether or not all of this has been rigged through conspiracies in order to hurt people and or carry out, you know, these sinister plots. Um, you really can't put that back in the box, you know, once it's been opened, like eventually that, that, that gets worse over time. You, you watch it escalate as people lose faith in these institutions and they lose faith in these processes. And eventually we reach the point where unfortunately this type of violence becomes commonplace and you start to see open society start to close off uh, piece by piece. Well, it's extraordinary to think that there's a fascist movement on the rise in this country led by a reality TV star, but it is, it is real. And what is even more frightening is that his, the apprentice, if you will, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, may prove to be even more of an effective fascist. I mean, he's attacking the very foundation of the multicultural America by labeling anybody that doesn't agree with him that's black, Latino, liberal, gay, whatever, as being woke, and which, of course, is a racist code word. So, again... It feels like out of the frying pan into the fire. You go from a crazy and reckless fascist to a more disciplined one. Yeah, and this is one of the things I, I always like to say, you know, Donald Trump was not the disease. He's a symptom. And, a you know, a lot of what Trump did was expose institutional rot to expose that a lot of the guardrails people thought were there simply didn't exist. Um, he made it possible for a lot of very, very wealthy people who hate democracy to begin attacking parts of democracy that in the past they had been too afraid or, or didn't believe that they could get to. Now we've reached this point where we're supposed to believe this fiction that all of this was caused by Trump. Um, you know, everything from uh, this radicalization to January 6th, when in fact it's it's these wealthy benefactors behind him. It's your co your Cokeses, your, uh, your DeVosses, your Bradleys, these right-wing billionaires who've been paying for this for decades now. And you look at somebody like Ron DeSantis, and I gotta tell you, Ian, I'm having conversations with so-called liberals, never Trumpers, um, who are talking themselves into Ron DeSantis because they believe he's serious or maybe that he isn't as dangerous as Donald Trump because he doesn't have that buffoonish cartoonishness to him. Um, we are entering into a period where that sort of more straight-laced fascism is going to gain power, particularly as the material conditions that created this in the first place aren't being addressed. And that's the whole point, is that something does have to change. We are at a crossroads, and things could get better. We could actually shore this thing up. But as long as we continue to pretend like it's just going to go away, it is going to get worse. Well, obviously, the plutocrats that you mentioned, these right-wing plutocrats, through a lobbyist, uh, Leonard Leo, of the Federalist Society, they were able to literally buy the Supreme Court. And... Their terrible ideas, which they could never sell politically, because nobody wants this wealth inequality, that nobody wants the waters and air in the country polluted just so that people can plunder and get richer and richer. But they've managed so far to capture the Supreme Court. So do you think that they can also capture the legislature as well? 
Well, I mean, they've captured so many layers of the legislature. And and one of the problems in this country has been that so much of this has happened while dark money and, and these oligarchical powers, they've been spreading their finances around. You know, um, we, we are now live in this era of dark money in which our government has been co-opted. The federal government has been largely kneecapped and hamstrung to the point where we now see states at, with, with like people like Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott as sort of being the arbiters of power at this point. So we've reached this point where we have so-called red states and blue states. In red states, women, of course, aren't allowed autonomy over their own bodies. Uh, we're seeing gerrymandering that's going to lead to voting rights losses. We're, we're looking at a uh, reestablishment, more or less, of apartheid politics. And we have a lot of blue states that feel like away from that. And as a result, it's not necessarily their concern. We're seeing the end of sort of a federal politics, and we're starting to see this balkanization take place. And you're exactly right. Leonard Leo and people like him are not household names, and yet they have become some of the most consequential power players in modern history. They've captured the Supreme Court. They've captured large parts of the legislature already. The states are being divvied up by them using conspiracy theories that are weaponized to take over everything from your local school board to your state legislature. Um, this stuff is gaining traction in a hurry. That's the whole point is a lot of it is very quiet. You know, it's not the splashy Donald Trump, you know, spectacle. And because it's very quiet and because it's not gaining a lot of uh, uh, attention or traction in our media, um, it's sort of flying under the radar. And, and honestly, they, they are getting a lot of these institutions and a lot of liberal democracy in checkmate. So just to touch on your book, The Midnight Kingdom, the new book that you have out, The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia and the Coming Crisis, Jared Yates Sexton. The book begins with the Roman Empire, but it makes it clear that the modern world we're in is at a crossroads and that the historic inequality is such that i mean let me just read a, a little bit from the new report from oxfam that finds the richest one percent of people amassed almost two-thirds of the new wealth created in the past two years globally so a total of 42 trillion in new wealth was created in 2020 with 26 trillion or 63 percent of that being amassed by the top 1% of the ultra-rich, according to this report. And, of course, today, the Davos meeting in Switzerland where the, the super-rich sit in hot tubs drinking champagne, wringing their hands about the fate of the world, is beginning. So how much do you think this is the central problem? That's everything. I mean, one of the one of the reasons that we're in this situation in the first place is because what what used to be called the New Deal consensus, of course, this is, uh, you know, everything from the 30s on. The idea was that the government should be investing in social projects, that, you know, people should be working, that we should have things like Social Security and health care and Medicare. Um, and eventually in the 1970s and 1980s, this new thing took place, neoliberalism, the idea that the government should not be investing in those things, that the only thing the government should do is to protect the free markets and to make sure that the wealthy continue to accrue wealth. Um, trillions of dollars were redistributed from the working and middle class, and that creates a problem. We have completely rigged this world to the benefit and whims of the wealthy. This is how you go from the 1980s where millionaires are flying private planes to where now you have Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos who have personal space agencies. 
And when you take all that wealth and you redistribute it, eventually the system stops working. That's where we're at now, is that the inherent uh, contradictions of this system are becoming apparent. The only way that this can get better is if we go ahead and make sure that it becomes more equal and so the system works, or you start bringing in elements of fascism. And fascism has always been about squaring the circle of capitalism, making sure people still go to work, making sure that all these exploitative systems continue to hum along. Those are the two options. That's the crossroads that we're at. Those are the two paths that we're taking a look at. And it's either going to make our lives better or we are going to enter into uh, what, what I believe is an authoritarian nightmare. So let's talk a little bit about your background in, in the context of what happened on January the 6th with this, of course, it was a coalition of anti-government, you know, neo-Confederates, Christian nationalists, and you grew up in an apocalyptic Christian household. And of course, you know, the apocalyptic mindset has now become a part of Republican orthodoxy. And it centers on the Book of Revelation, but a completely misinterpretation of the book of Revelation, but nevertheless passionately felt, in other words, the world has to end in burning flesh. You and I will die in the lake of fire while the good Christians are raptured up to heaven. It's spiritual pornography. I'm astounded that it got as far as it did. It's so sick in every sense that people would wish this upon their fellows citizens, let alone their fellow Christians. So how did it happen? What is the attraction to this notion that the end of the world is nigh? Well, one of the things that I found researching the Midnight Kingdom was how the strains of apocalypticism have changed the world. You know, what it does is it provides a convenient story, which is what all these conspiracy theories and ideologies do. Basically, it, it creates an out for people to say, you know, what I'm about to do to other people, whether it's hurting them, taking away their rights, oppressing them, there is a reason I'm doing it. Not because I want power, because I want to be uh, you know, more influential or I want more wealth. I'm doing it because I'm trying to save the world. It makes me a hero. It makes me a savior. As a result, I can do anything to anybody because I'm doing it for the right reasons. And apocalypticism is an incredible mindset, right? I have to do really terrible things, things that are almost just completely unthinkable, but the, the stakes are so bad that that means I can imprison my enemies. That means I can carry out genocides. I can wage world wars simply because I am trying to stave off a disaster that I promise you is coming. And that apocalypticism, when it's paired with power as it is now, it becomes just outright dangerous. And that is, by the way, the basis of fascism. It's the basis of here's a larger spiritual ideology that gets merged in with these power components that eventually goes ahead and makes everything from genocide to world war to, to terrible, terrible actions uh, completely legitimized. So can this be in our kind of political or social DNA? Can this kind of religious fervor and apocalyptic paranoia be passed on through the generations? Because after all, the people who originally settled in the United States on Plymouth Rock, you know, they were religious fanatics. They were kicked out of England. They went to the Netherlands and then they were kicked out of the Netherlands. They came back to England and people said, please go away. And they put them on boats and they ended up here in the United States and became the, the first settlers. So 
<laughs> I was born in Australia, so I'm a descendant from convicts. But I'm not sure that being a descendant from convicts is worse than being a descendant from religious fanatics. Yeah, and and you know that's one of the things that I wanted to to talk about in this book is everybody wants to pretend like all of this is unprecedented that we've never seen it before. America was built on paranoia. Everything from the Pilgrims, you know, you look at the American Revolution. It was based on conspiracy theories. The idea that England was going to take Native Americans and the slave population and turn them against us, and as a result, we had to fight this revolutionary war. You know, this idea of how about uh, the founders were supposed to rule the country. You get to the election of eight. 1800. This is, you know, of course, the re-election campaign of John Adams. What does he do? He calls Thomas Jefferson a uh, the head of a Jacobin, uh, you know, Freemason conspiracy, Illuminati conspiracy to destroy Christianity. Like this is deep, deep in the American DNA, and it has been used to carry out everything from the genocide of the Native Americans to wars and exploitation. This is not unprecedented. We can look at history and we can learn from it and we can we can correct these mistakes that we've made. But continuing to peddle these mythologies and fake stories about American exceptionalism and the like, it only makes the problem worse. But in the last few minutes, Jared, let's talk about how this situation may is not terminal and it could be turned around and how we're at a moment where the midterms turned out better than expected. The election deniers weren't able to take over the electoral machinery of the country and turn the country into a one-party state uh, along the lines of their hero, Viktor Orban in Hungary. Bolsonaro got booted out of Brazil. The Ukrainians are resisting the Russian fascists who are literally murdering them and blowing up their buildings and determined to wipe them off the face of the earth, although there may be another spring offensive that could be more punishing. It's a horrible situation, but at least it's clear who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. China recently was challenged by its own people, even though it's a ubiquitous surveillance state with massive police powers. And look at these brave young women in um, Iran that maybe could topple this hideous theocracy. So there are some bright spots out there. Yes, absolutely. And I remain optimistic. I really, truly think that we're going to have a better future and that we're going to fight for uh, uh, democratic progress. And one of the reasons I believe that is history tells us that humanity is just a remarkable species. We do some really awful things, but we're always striving for more freedom and more rights and and, and a better future. Um, I think we're going to turn this thing around. And all of the, the examples you just cited, they, they speak to me. You know, you look at Iran, the idea that, that that regime could be toppled. You look at China, they have all of the technology in the world, like trying to keep people oppressed. I think eventually we're going to get this thing figured out. I think it's going to take people's movements, democratic movements, and I think eventually we're going to push back. But I do want to caution people. It's not going to happen because, you know, a Robert Mueller or a James Comey, you know, swoops in on a white horse and sets things right. We have to stop looking for saviors and messiahs. We have to get involved in democracy. It's not enough to simply vote every two to four years. We have to start building communities. We have to start building trust and we have to start pushing back. Well, indeed, you know, Obama, who was the man on the white horse, he himself encouraged his voters not to go home after election days. And he said, it's not, yes, I can, but it's, yes, we can. And that seems to be lost. So the, we have to rise up. Is that your message in a nutshell? 
Absolutely. And, you know, the messages that we've received for decades now is don't worry about government. You know, the experts and the the the, the political class have this taking control. Just go out and buy things. Enjoy yourself. Watch your programs, you know. And, and what we've seen is the decline of civic engagement. But I think that's coming back. I think we're starting to rely on one another again. We're starting to get involved in local politics and regional politics. We have to get into the fight. We cannot allow a government that's been bought off by the wealthy to continue misrepresenting us. But I am seeing a change there. I think there's a sea change coming. So, Jared Yates, excellent. I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Ian, a pleasure always. And again, I've been speaking with Jared Yates Sexton, the author of American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World but Failed Its People, and The People Are Going to Rise Up Like the Waters Upon Your Shore, as well as three collections of fiction. He's the host of the Muckrake podcast, and his latest book just out is The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon, and this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates, as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Whoa.